0: Welcome to the Cartoon Caption Contest Podcast. I'm Vin Koka. With me, as always, is Beth Lawler and Paul Nesher. And on part two of today's episode, we will be talking with Tom Toro. And uh, we'll be going over the winner for his contest, 758. We will hold off on that for now. And uh, we'll discuss that with Tom Toro. So why don't we jump right in here to contest 760. The waiter talking to a couple in a restaurant. And another waiter is dragging over a garbage pail finalists this week are it's curb to table. I'm sorry, sir, but we do reserve the right to serve refuse to anyone and define fresh. Paul, what was your take on, uh, these three?
1: Um, I liked two out of three of them. Uh, the first one and the third one, the second one, I it's, I don't understand the second one, the, uh, I'm sorry, sir, but we do reserve the right to uh, serve refuse to anyone. Uh, there was another caption there that was just like this, but it was much shorter, much more concise, and it made it funnier. I don't understand why they picked number two here. Uh, the first one,
0: it's curved table. Well, That's perfect. I'm going to cut you off. Let's oh, okay. stay on number two because we yeah. got an email about this caption as well. So let's. Um, do you recall the shorter version that you felt was better? Uh, we reserve the right to serve refuse. All right. So, yes, that was the same one highlighted in the email. Yep. Uh, why do you feel that's better? Uh, once again, it's like the it's superfluous words in the,
1: uh, the one they picked. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I don't think they need that. Uh, and uh, when I started it down, I get to we reserve the right to serve refuse. Um, it's just too many words for me. It, it just there's too much there. You didn't need that to, uh, to make it funny. You could have cut that out.
0: All right. It, so I do disagree. I don't disagree that this is not a good caption. Sorry, Eric. You're a finalist. I'm not. So <laughs> you know you you already are better than me. But I do not like that caption. I don't think that is a good caption. Having said that. I don't think the shorter version works, right? The shorter version is we reserve the right to serve refuse, which really just means one thing. We reserve the right to serve garbage. It has that one meaning. This isn't saying that. This is a play on words. It's, it's twisting up the words, right? It's saying, I'm sorry, sir. We do reserve the right to serve refuse to anyone, which is a play on the common expression. We do reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. So this is playing with those words. The shorter version does not play with those words. The shorter version is not better; it's worse, in my opinion.
1: Well, it's let's see. We're going to disagree on this because I think that that expression is well known enough where you don't have to fill it out to get people to understand what they're talking about. So, it's
0: you think if you read, uh, we reserve the right to serve refuse. That that brings you to it's it's that last word in there it's
1: that last word in there refuse and refuse it can be read both ways for me and it's like it it instantly popped into my mind it's this well it's the first one I saw I didn't see the other one until later so it's like oh they got too many words in this one I like the first one because it was more concise I understood what they're getting at so I, I I think I can see it both ways you know it's like maybe some people need that extra bit to, you know, for it really to connect. Right. So, yeah, I think
0: fortunately, pod- this is a podcast of three. So Beth, be the, uh, <laughs> be the, be the decision maker.
2: Well, I think that the saying, the, the real saying is we reserve the, the right to refuse service. I don't think that you really need to anyone um, in either the caption or in the, the original, um, Thing, so i kind of agree with with paul that i think this one's too wordy
0: um we reserve the right to refuse reserve the right to serve refuse isn't a play on words because the the word service would need to be there in this case you don't need the word service because it's saying we reserve the right to refuse to serve anyone right without the to anyone it's just we reserve the right to serve refuse there's not a play on words there. It's just we reserve the right to serve garbage. This is, we, <laughs> you know, I, I don't see how the first, how the shorter version is a play on words where I do see how this caption is a play on words mm-hmm. because you, you don't need the word service for this caption to work. You do need the word, the word service for the shorter version to work.
2: Okay. But do you think it needs, I'm sorry, sir?
0: No. Mm-hmm. I, I,
2: just I'm I fine if you
0: remove the, the yeah, I'm sorry, sir, but I do think you need the, you know, the ending, the right to serve refuse to anyone. I do think all of those words are necessary to get the joke across. Yeah, I,
1: I agree with you there is that if you remove that, we, I'm sorry, sir, but, and the yeah. do, it's just, we reserve the right to serve refuse to anyone. That works. Yeah. But it's kind of between the two of them then. It's, you know, you found a good, happy medium in there. Yeah yeah
2: Reserve the right to refuse no we reserve the right to serve refuse to anyone that would have worked
0: yeah okay all right' all That's right, good. we got an email about that, so uh at least one other person was curious about it. I'm sure more um so good, I think we just hashed that out well uh, i I think it's worded okay, but regardless i don't do not think it's a good caption uh all right, so we beat that one up. How about the first one? It's curb to table. Yeah,
1: I, I like that one. It's, it's nice and concise. It's, uh, you know, it's a take on the obvious. It's farm to table, which has been done to death, but I happen to like this one, you know? So it, it works for me. Uh, the third one, uh, Define fresh. I actually thought of that one when I was trying to, to come up with captions, but I decided it was too simple. So I, I didn't enter it or I didn't even you know, think about entering it, but it, it works again. But if I were to rank them, it's uh, uh, it's Curb to Table is my favorite. Define uh, Fresh is my second and the other one is in distant third. Yeah,
2: I, I agree with that ranking also. I think um, it's Curb to Table is really strong because Form to Table is such a well-known um, thing. You see that everywhere Mm -hmm. the last few years, farm to table restaurants. And um, I just think it completely works with the drawing. And I think that it's concise and it's funny and it works with the drawing. And I think she pretty much nailed it with that. Um, Define Fresh, I think is funny also. Um, I did a similar caption like like that. Uh, We talked about with Carolita last week for the spoiled cat on the throne. I did a Define Spoiled. Um, mm. So I also thought about doing something with Define Fresh for this one, but it didn't work for me last time, so I disregarded that idea. Um, I think that was funny. I think Edo has a really good shot, but I think that Linda may eke him out on this one. Susan. Oh, Susan. Linda is yeah.
1: Sorry. I got to mix it up too.
2: Sorry, Susan, sorry, Linda. <laughs> They're sisters. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, I think Susan may eat them out on this one. Yeah.
1: Full disclosure, we know the people who are I've got the and third position here. So <laughs> not being biased. We just happen to know them. Right.
0: So that's All right. Uh, I tend to agree. I think we're in agreement on, uh, on these finalists. How about the new photo? Another... Drew Dernovich, contest 762. Now, Drew had mentioned he had two cartoons in the stockpile there at the New Yorker, both for caption contest, one that he really liked his original caption. I wonder if this was it. Uh, we will try and find out. Um, by the time there's a winner here, we'll try and either get Drew on or figure out what his original caption was. Because I know he said one of those that he had for them, he was very proud of his original caption. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if it's this one. Having said that, uh, Beth, what's your take on this cartoon here? Um,
2: I love this cartoon. I I think the drawing is so great. It's just, the drawing in itself is super funny to me. Um, I already submitted my caption and I ended up going with what will it take to get you into one of these babies today? So my... (laughs) My take on it was that the uh, the mouse in the forefront speaking to the turtle is kind of like a used car salesman. And he's,
0: mm-hmm. trying,
2: he's trying to sell one of those mice wheels to the turtle, who clearly does not need one. Um, yes, I, uh,
0: I like that. I think it's a good, clever take. Uh, I think there will be a lot of uh, similar captions. One that I had was, take it for a spin. Same mm-hmm. idea, but I think yours is less obvious and so better. But um, but I suspect there will be many take it for a spin, which is yeah. kind of the same idea, you know. Yeah, viewing this as a viewing this as a salesman. Yeah,
2: but yours has nice wordplay in there that mine doesn't. So we'll see.
1: A- yeah, I, I like yours, Beth. Uh, when when I saw you post that in the Facebook group, I was just kind of like, "Ah, oh, crap! Beth <laughs> is going to beat me again." <laughs> 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 Like I have to do a Tanya Harding here and get you out of the.
2: <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, mine's also a long wordy caption, so um, it's fourteen words, so might not, you know, I, because of that. But I felt like you needed all those words to get the joke out. So
0: I don't know if there are rules anymore, and I wonder if that's because of crowdsourcing. Um, it seems like length that rule has been broken. And it seems like the punchline at the end, that rule has been broken. Uh, again, we don't know how these are being selected. Uh, I hope to find out soon. But if they're truly being selected by crowdsourcing, that would possibly explain why length and punchline at the end are kind of getting tossed to the side. Yeah. Uh,
2: I, I think there's going to be a lot of captions that are like, you missed your appointment, you're late again. Um, you know, plays on the turtle being slow to get to whatever was going on there that he needed to get to. Um,
0: but they just did that joke with the uh, chameleon. Uh, right. Again, rules will seem to be broken, but they shouldn't repeat a, you're late or, you know, uh, yeah. I'd hope they would repeat that idea.
2: Yeah. So, Paul, I thought you had a good idea with weight training is next door.
1: Yeah, Anything that was one where... Yeah, it's the uh, once again, it's the slowness of the turtle and you know, it's an yeah. exercise. So, what did I have here? Uh, weight training is next door. So, W A I T, weight training is next door. So, a plan the word weight could be either weight, yeah. or weight. So, uh, but I figured there's going to be, you know, uh, once again, like I said, it's going to be these slowness, slowness of the turtle and there's going to be quite a few of those. It's like uh, I, I don't want to go in that direction. Uh, the other one I came up with was uh, "Welcome to Spinning Class." So another spinning one, but once again, it's like, okay, it's going to get lost to the crowd with spin because there's going to be a lot of spin classes. Take it for a spin, and mm-hmm. I, I try not to get lost in the crowd. So what I finally came up with at the end, this this one I entered was good. I see you brought your helmet. Mm-hmm.
2: I and like I did
1: that. that because I look at the mice that are in the spinning things, and they're just flying all over the place. They're, they're <laughs> going to get injured in there. <laughs> so, and I was going back and forth with uh, whether to include good, you know, it's like, I see you brought your helmet or good. I see you brought your helmet. And it's like, you know, they've been picking them with that extra word in there. I'm going to leave that in there just mm-hmm. to see what happens.
0: Yeah. I don't even think that's an extra word. I think that word is good to have in there.
1: Well, I'm glad you said that because that's what I thought too after I did it. It's like, because of this mice flying around, it's kind of like the instructor
0: is saying, good. I see you brought your helmet. Right. In other words, if you, different. if you, re- if you remove all those wheels and just a mouse talking to a turtle, you could submit, I see you brought your helmet and it yeah. works. Yeah. Yeah. Once you add the wheels, now that good is addressing the wheel. So I think it yeah. adds, I don't think it's an extra word. I think it adds yeah. to the joke. Right, because yeah. again, you could remove those wheels and the caption still works without the word "good." When you add those, the word "good," it's now addressing the fact that there's a crazy, you know, scene going on <laughs> behind them. Yeah, so I, and, I, I think it's good you left that word in. Yeah, it was. I was going
1: back and forth, and I, I, I looked at the same way you did just now. It's like I think this adds something to it. it. It may be
0: not needed, but I think it does add something to it. So we'll see. And it is interesting. It is interesting that he drew the mice flopping all over the place uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it leads me to believe his original caption had something to do with the turtle landing on his back um uh-huh. just because yeah. just because of the fact that these mice are not running on a wheel in a normal sense they're mm-hmm. kind of flipping upside down yeah i didn't come up with any caption that relates to that but if i had to guess i guess his original caption has something to do with the turtle flipping on his back
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah that's a good take on it i, I didn't think of
1: that one so yeah, I'm sure we'll see something, but yeah.
2: It is funny imagery though. the mice in those wheels is hysterical. Do you ever go to a pet store and watch the mice on the oh. wheel? <laughs> yeah. I <Fun. Yeah. laughs> like that. They're, they hang on, but they're they flip all over the place.
0: <laughs> oh, do they flip around like this?
2: Well they don't they don't bounce. Not around. to the extreme,
0: right? They don't actually get to the top, but but,
2: but they actually no, they do. They make complete rotations.
0: They go all the way around, upside down.
2: Get
0: out of here. They go upside of, down? Yeah, I have a video of it somewhere. I'll, I'll send it to you. I'll find it. I'll <laughs> oh, I'm wow. guessing if you Google um, exercise well, going you're going to find quite done. a few of those. It's
2: hysterical. It's fun.
0: And uh, you have to think there's going to be a few with the tortoise and the hare. Oh, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I suspect yeah. they'll select one that addresses that. I just don't know. Uh, I had one that kind of made sense. If you view this as him, like as a personal trainer, uh, which I said, you won't fool him again with that slow and steady crap. (laughs) Uh, It it kind of depends how you view this mouse, you know, as a salesman, as a personal trainer, uh, I'm sure there um, are other ways. to.
2: uh, I I came up with one where a hair is short H A R E like a rabbit where a hair short, but I didn't, I thought, I thought the used car salesman idea was better.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, Also, I assume we all think the mouse is talking because of his hand, right? Because, again, neither of these have really a mouth open. But I think him putting his hand out is giving us enough.
2: That's what I thought, too. Um, If you look closely at the drawing, it kind of looks like the turtle could be speaking. Um, Yeah, it does. But but I I think that the mouse with his hand out is speaking. He's
1: pacing us, too. So that's kind of another clue that he's the one speaking to us. Yeah. yeah. Mm.
2: But I did question that after I submitted my caption. I was like, oh, my God, do I have the wrong speaker? Yeah. Like...
0: I wish they would tell us, like, the cartoon collections tells you who's talking. Yeah. Uh, I wish the New Yorker would tell us who's talking or at least make it more obvious. But I think Drew gave us that hand to kind of say, this yeah. this is the guy talking.
2: Yeah. I think so,
0: too. And um, quick before we end, it looks like I seem to be right in this death cartoon. I don't know if you looked at the crowdsourcing. I looked right before we jumped on and uh, I saw nothing that was even kind of good. I don't know if you guys saw something you liked. I didn't even see any that were okay. I thought everything I just looked at, you know, at seven o'clock before we jumped on was not good. Yeah, I
2: saw so many to die for oh. captions. This is to die for, this is to die for. Um, I was a little upset because I, I came up with an idea after I submitted my lousy caption um, that was, would it kill you to try one? And I didn't see anything like that in the crowdsourcing. And now I'm thinking, Darn, I should have, you know, submitted that through Instagram or something, but I felt like that would be cheating, so I didn't. Um, but... I was, I was also amazed I don't love
0: that idea, but I think it will probably be a finalist. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't love so the many. would kill for to die for. I really don't like that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know if they're going to have a choice because I haven't mm-hmm. seen any good ones. Although I actually liked what I ended up submitting. It's gone. I, ne- I never saw it in crowdsourcing. I don't know that it would show up, but I I liked it. I thought it was an okay take. I said, "Uh, don't worry. You'll be getting plenty of flowers. Like she was hoping for a flower delivery, but now she's going to die. So she'll get a, I think it's a bit of a thinker; it wouldn't really make it through. Mm-hmm. But I could think of nothing, so I was happy when I finally thought of that, and I was reasonably happy with it. So I felt like I, I at least got some.
2: Amazed by how many captions the crowdsourcing took the lemons to be some other kind of baked good, or you know, I thought,
0: yeah, everything. they totally—it's right over their head.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like I was like, it's when death gives you lemons, clearly. So,
1: I didn't understand that. It's like, how did you miss that? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's some people that are going in and voting right now and just going, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. crazy." Yeah, so. I, I think I saw mine a couple times uh, last night. At one point today, I saw my caption, so it's there somewhere. I don't know if it's going to stick around. Worst lemonade stand ever. Make like. a caption, so I
0: like that. Yeah, it. I that, saw yeah, it saw thought, but you know that was it. <laughs> it has a chance. Uh, the The three finalists will be mediocre. I said it last week, and I believe that'll be the case. This is going to be like the fireman contest, where it's they're going to have a hard time finding them because I don't know. There just wasn't good jokes for this. Maybe it doesn't need a caption.
2: Yeah, who knows. Yeah. Great drawing. Really
0: great drawing. So next week we have Paul Noth. Yes. Next week is Paul Noth. And uh, a few minutes from now, stay tuned. And uh, we have a good conversation with Tom Toro coming up. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode.
1: Hey tom
3: hello how are you how is everybody i'm doing pretty good i'm very very warm (laughs) portland (laughs) Portland, oregon hottest place on the planet (laughs) yeah so
2: we were just talking about that before you joined
3: yeah it's 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 not okay it's yeah. very, very warm. <laughs> we we were in a hotel the past couple nights because our house doesn't have air conditioning, as a lot of homes in, in Oregon don't. And, uh, yeah, it's just starting to break, but it's, it's still warm. Yeah. So I'm hoping to set the record for the sweatiest <laughs> caption contest podcast.
0: We'll try to keep the questions light so we don't put you under pressure. <laughs> I was
3: going to have a box fan, but I was concerned about the audio, so I'll just sweat it out.
0: well we were reading a little about you before we started um so maybe you want to just start with a quick brief background and uh we'll interject with some questions
3: sure so i'm tom toro um i've been cartooning for the new yorker since 2010 was the first first time they published me um and yeah i'm from el cerrito california in the east bay of the california bay area and um yeah, it was. It's funny how I came to the New Yorker because I never, I didn't grow up with the New Yorker in my living room. It wasn't really part of our household culture. We would have like Sports Illustrated because my dad uh, is an athlete. He's actually uh, an olymp. He he has a bronze medal from the Tokyo Games, so this is a big anniversary for him of the Tokyo oh. Olympics coming up again. So yeah, we were like, you know, we were sort of, we we were like, you know making ends meet and didn't have a lot of money for, you know, magazine subscriptions and stuff. So the New Yorker, my, my comics growing up were, were like the newspaper comics, like Farside and Calvin and Hobbes, mostly Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I love them and, and the Farside too. But then I, you know, I went to college and started doing cartoons for the college paper, uh, which was a fun, you know, distraction from from all the other craziness of college life. And, but I never really considered it as like a professional career. I studied film you go marketing. to college. I went to Yale.
0: That's, That's what, what I thought. All,
3: all the way across the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you know, in in a, in a strange town, not knowing anybody. I went to public high school, so I felt like I was just going to get completely blown out of the water by all these, you know, smart kids. <laughs> so I gravitated toward you know the satirists and um, the people you know working for the Yale Herald. I made cartoons for. Um, so yeah, I was doing that, and I was I was on the rowing team, and I was studying filmmaking, trying to figure out how to, how to make the most of my time there. Um, and I, then I went to film school after college and I very quickly learned that um, the storyboards that I drew for the movies were better than the movies that I made from the storyboards. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So then I, I I went through a period of readjustment and, you know, started taking cartooning seriously. And I came across the New Yorker. I think it was like the first time was at like a library overstock sale. They had a huge bin of, of these you know, these magazines, and I just started leafing through them and came upon the New Yorker and started leafing through them and uh, realized like, oh, cartoons can be taken seriously. Like they can actually be, you know, elevated to to this wonderful level. So then I, I sort of honed in on that as my focus. So if I'm going to break into this, I'm going to do that. Um, and it took about two and a half years of submissions to finally, finally sell one.
0: And at that point, you were back living home, right?
3: I was living at home. I was living at home. Yeah, I went through a pretty dark period of depression um, after (laughs) a whole sequence of things happened in my mid-20s. I'm actually working on a a graphic memoir about that whole period and coming to cartooning through a personal crisis. Um, So I I won't, you know, no spoilers here yet. (laughs) All right. Yeah, Um, I imagine
0: that's disheartening though, right? You you go to Yale and you kind of think it's to the moon from there and then you graduate Yale and it's Back at home. I mean, I, Yale,
3: Yale was funny because it was like, I, you know, I thought I was going to get blown out of the water. So I signed, I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally. I like thought I wanted to be a chemical engineer for a while. And then I, you know, I was trying to force myself into all these disciplines because I thought, okay, you know, I'm here at this, you know, prestigious university. I have to like push myself and, you know, into uncomfortable places and study things that seem very, you know, uh, difficult just to prove my, prove my mettle. Um, but I, I quickly realized that, you know, most, most kids at Yale are just kind of there for various (laughs) reasons and not everyone is like a astonishing, uh, you know, violin soloist. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I kind of went into it with this very, a lot of pressure on myself. And I think that that continued a long way into my twenties and coming to cartooning was a really good way of, of starting to take things a little bit lighter, you know, finding the sort of lightheartedness in life and, uh, and also it seemed like a very manageable thing. Like you can just take a piece of paper and a pencil, you can come up with this witticism that no one has ever done before. And it was like, it's not the huge scale of movie making or you know, all these moving pieces um, and that kind of thing. So I, th- I like I liked the kind of combination of like the brilliance that can be achieved in it and also the modesty of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of, sort of it's, it's just a very egalitarian task. All you need is a piece of printer paper and a pencil, you know. Um, So, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question, but. (laughs) Did
2: you have an art background at all? Did you study? Uh,
3: It was kind of self-taught. I mean, I took some art classes like in middle school. I I mean, I grew up in the public school system in California in the 80s, which had been completely torpedoed by Reagan's tax cuts um, in the decade before. So the property taxes got frozen in California, which meant that. As you know, cost of living went up. The same amount of money was continuing to go into the school system. So I remember my my fourth grade year, I think, in like, you know, nineteen eighty nine or something. Um, we had all these brilliant electives you could sign up for. I remember signing up for like photography and the cooking class and everything. And then the school year started, and they said, "Oh, by the way, those aren't available anymore." And then the school district almost went bankrupt like two years before the school year <laughs> ended. So I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, not having a lot of like robust artistic courses today. So it was, it was mostly self-teaching. My pa- my mom is very artistic. She wanted to be um, a sort of botanical illustrator um, and she ended up studying landscape architecture at UC Berkeley. Um, so, and she, you know, she did like the logo design for my swim team when I was little and stuff like that. So I was around creativity um, in that way. And my father's a Naval architect. So he would do, you know, before AutoCAD and before computers, he would, I remember going into his office on Solano Avenue and in uh, Berkeley and you know, seeing his drafting table and these beautiful schematics of ships that he was redesigning and that, that sort of thing. So I've always sort of found myself as a combination of kind of my father's perfectionist quality of engineering drawings and my mom's uh, more creative, botanical, organic way of drawing things. Because so I have a sort of fastidious quality to myself, but um, in a sort of playful way.
2: You are... Um... Her drawing style reminds me personally of uh, Sid Hoff, mm. uh, his children, children's books, Yes, um, like uh, Danny and the Dinosaur. Um, and, yeah, uh, we, ha-
3: we have that one on our bookshelf. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> has anybody <laughs> ever, else ever said that to you before? Or?
3: No, no, that's the first time I've been compared to Sid, Sid Hoff. I take that as a great compliment. He's, he's <laughs> wonderful. I mean, I, you know, I kinda I hope to have my style continue to evolve. I mean, there's the kind of danger of when you break into the magazine of becoming like frozen in amber. It's like, oh my gosh, this is what they like. Now I have an audience for this kind of stuff. I have to keep repeating it. Um, but you know, William Steig is a great example among others, who whose style evolved enormously, you know, during the course. So I, I hope to be one of the people who continues to experiment and you know not not get stale in the beginning i had a very i i've I started using different pens and stuff like that just to shake things up but i had sort of a very you know c- consistent line weight to the drawings and i've started to sort of do more stuff with nibs and do a little bit more of a fluid um, variable line weight and stuff like that and one, i mean one of the funny things about the pandemic a sort of silver lining of the pandemic is that my kid just got old enough when the pandemic hit to become really interested in Calvin and Hobbes. So during the course of the past like 14 months, we've read the complete collection of Calvin and Hobbes cover to cover probably 10 times. <laughs> and like, in a way that was great for me to kind of rediscover my love of that from when I was that age. And it's really kind of inspired me to like experiment more in that realm. I'm actually, you know, not to jinx it, Knockwood. I'm kind of, I'm in contract negotiations now with, um a, pres- a syndicate to do like a, a newspaper comic strip um or a syndicated comic strip so um yeah so I, I would love to continue to evolve but yeah being compared to Sid Hoff is is a great honor thank you for that
2: <laughs> it's an observation of you know your your people the way you draw people um reminds me of, of
3: that um, yeah my idea, my ideal cartoon person is kind of a human cat like someone who like you can imprint your own emotion on them. They're not telling you how to read the situation. That's why a lot of my characters, I don't even give them mouths. Like it's very minimalist facial expression, just dots for eyes and a nose, um, which kind of, you know, and then when I have to do sort of more political work and do caricature stuff so you can actually identify the person, I have to sort of stretch myself into, into that. But sort of my, my template character is as little expression as possible. So the reader can imbue them. With however you are interpreting the cartoon, and so it also, took you what?
0: took you what? Over six hundred caption cartoons to finally get into the into the New Yorker.
3: Yeah, when I finally sold my first one, I kind of perversely went back and counted all the ones that had been rejected and figured out that it was number six hundred and ten and they got sold, and that was over probably two and a half years. I started somewhere in two thousand and seven. I started submitting by mail. I didn't have the editor's email address. I just started sending in submissions by mail. So I have a little collection of the actual physical rejection slips that you get in the mail. So those are in a drawer somewhere. Um, and, you know, not everyone that they rejected was an undiscovered masterpiece. Like they, like I was figuring things out, <laughs> mm-hmm. like they, they were, they were actually, you know, and I, I changed styles um, during the course of that period too, because it's a weird thing. You want to, You want, and I was was studying the cartoons every week that were appearing, you know, I of course got a subscription and started looking at them very closely. And I mean, you know, when I was first breaking in, Leo Cullum was still getting published. Charles Barsati was still getting published. Jack Ziegler was still being published. Ross Chast of course was continuing, and she still gets published. But there there was so many great cartoonists in there and Bob Mankoff's stuff was, you know, still appearing. Um, So it was an, it was kind of, it was daunting because you were trying to wedge yourself in there among these living legends, you know, George Booth, you know, is still Mm -hmm. cartooning and he was was publishing then as well. Um, So you want to like, you have to thread this needle of. Of belonging, having stuff that seems like it belongs in the New Yorker and still being individual, like still being unique to your own style. So you're you're trying to find that tightrope. and it can be kind of, it, it can make you very self-conscious, you know, when you're trying to de- develop that style. Like, like, am I doing this right? Is this too much like this artist? Is it too much like that artist? So, so yeah, it took a long time of me kind of experimenting and, you know, quite frankly, flailing <laughs> to like fi- find my way into, oh, these are the jokes I want to tell. This is how I want to express them. Um, so, yeah, so I say 610. It's not that the 609 before that were, you know, overlooked unjustly. It's like the, the, they shouldn't have been in the New Yorker. They weren't, I wasn't ready um and i talked to the editor at the time who 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 let me in bob bankoff who i you know i owe my career to him basically um and he said that he i am part of the sort of generation that he helped encourage at that moment and he said that he started letting people in before a little bit before they were actually ready and i think i was one of those people because he realized that there just weren't young artists submitting you know to the new york at a certain point like when he inherited the editorship and he says this in his memoir um it was, kind of, it was cruising along pretty well. I mean, it had all those artists in it and they could have just kept going for the next decade without him actively searching for new talent. But he realized that at a certain point that was gonna become a problem. So he set about you know, discovering people, encouraging people. And I was lucky enough to be one of those. So when I started publishing, I, it was a little bit earlier than it might've been in previous generations. I wasn't quite ready, but he saw something in it and, and uh, you know, pushed me to keep, keep growing
0: were you close to quitting or did you plan on keep going until you got in
3: every week? Yeah. Every week I quit <laughs>
0: and then
3: <laughs> really realized I had nowhere else to go. realized I was waking up in my, in my parents' shed in our backyard. And uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it can be discouraging. It can definitely be discouraging, but you kind of have to have a chip on your shoulder. You have to have a little bit of like a retaliatory attitude. It's like, Oh, I deserve to get in. Why are they rejecting this? You know, I'm going to send twice as many next week until they see how talented I am. You have to have a little bit of delusion like like, like in order to keep stumbling forward, but also just, you know, taking pleasure in the work itself as much as possible, which is kind of a platitude that's easier to say than do when you're constantly hitting this wall of rejection. But genuinely, it's a kind of coincidence that happens more often than not is when you are enjoying the stuff that you're doing, is when it starts to get accepted, you know, and I, and I don't think that's entirely coincidental, you know, something in it, some the
1: joy somehow conveys itself through the work. Mm. You, um, you go back remember your first cartoon that you had uh, sold to the New Yorker.
3: Yeah. The first one that I sold was the, the bow-legged cowboy cartoon. It's a saloon drawing and there's some cowboys sitting at a bar and behind them is the classic swinging doors that are, Empty on the bottom and top, that let you into saloon. And on the top, you can see a cowboy's head. And on the bottom, there are no legs. And the cart and the cowboys at the bar are saying that there's one bow-legged cowboy because <laughs> the legs actually span the doorframe. You know. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first one that got in. And I think that one, you know, there there was a certain uh, succinctness to the drawing. You know, I sort of I sort of had everything arranged in the right way on the actual page. And the caption was succinct and it was a it was it was a visual incongruity that got solved by the caption. You know, the puzzle kind of solved itself well. So I think I am really I'm happy that I was the first, first one that got that got sold. And actually, you know, on a biographical note, my dad is phenomenally bow-legged. <laughs> <laughs> so I think a lot of that kind of came from from him. He's he's since had hip and knee replacement surgery. So it's actually kind of funny. I don't kind of recognize his silhouette anymore because they, they actually straightened out his lips. Um, but yeah, so a little ode to my father in that first one that sold. And, but the, funnily enough, the first one that sold actually was not the first one that got published. It was a little bit of an introduction into kind of the vicissitudes of, of, of when cartoons actually appear in the magazine. Um, the first one that got published was the Tweedledee and Tweedledum one, where Tweedledum is saying to Tweedledee. And you know I prefer the name Dave. Um, so that, that one got, that was the second one I sold, first one that got published. And that one actually got published um, in May of 2010 with a cover by Dan Chloe's um, called Boomerang Generation with a kid who's moved back into his childhood bedroom, hanging his PhD diploma on the wall. And I was still living <laughs> at home at that time. So that was kind of, that was, that was, that was a little bit of the fates kind of, you know, winking at me um, with that one. So yeah, that, that was the first one we got published, but the first one that sold was the Bowlegged Cowboy.
0: Were you getting feedback before that, before that one yeah. sold or was it totally out of the blue? Or at a certain point, did Bob start at least giving you some feedback where you thought you were relatively close?
3: Yeah, good question. So I went, I was, I was just sending them in purely you know, by mail, getting the rote feedback, getting, getting just the slip back with no indication of whether I was moving in the right direction or whether I was getting closer. Um, and I reached out, you know, I was sort of internet stalking the various other artists
1: who were
3: who were getting published. Um, I reached out to Matt Diffie. And he gave me some helpful advice, which I'm, of course, going to blank on right now. And everyone who's hoping to break in is going to kill me for not being able to share it. Um, but I, I reached out to a couple of the people who, who got it, who, who gave me advice. And then I finally decided, like, I have to get some sort of barometer of whether I'm fooling myself or, or what's going on. So the summer before I sold, I think it was August. I, I flew to New York. I was living in California at my parents' house. Flew to New York and went in. You know, the New Yorkers kind of crazy in the fact that they just have open office. Hours. Like you can go, I think it's Tuesday now. And I think I'd probably COVID change things, but they might pick it up again. And it was before COVID. You can just show up and drop off uh, uh, submissions and sit across from the editor without having published for you, sh- you can just come to the drop-off hours. And so I, I showed up the drop-off hours. I think I had the time slightly wrong because when I came there, no one else was there. And I thought I was, I was, I didn't know if I was late or early, but the assistant let me in and Bob saw me. And so he had, he had time. There wasn't other people waiting. And so he actually sat across from me and and spoke, you know, with me for about a half hour um, after he, of course, looked at my submissions, registered no expression whatsoever, set them aside and said, I'm not going to buy any of these. (laughs) But then he, he, he sort of, he he started you know talking about you know the legacy of the new yorker how the cartoons have changed over time his philosophy of cartooning and then i told him you know i was reaching out to people getting advice and trying to like you know hone my stuff so it'll be acceptable to the new yorker and he and he said stop giving yourself so many rules like, like stop trying to follow all these guidelines that you're giving yourself and you know that was that, that was what i took that's what i came away from the conversation remembering the most And so like on the plane ride home, I just tried drawing faces a different way. I tried kind of, you know, just re-engineering my style a little bit and trying to find a more observational quality. Like, how do I see the world? How do I want to represent my own perspective on the world Um, and not try and, you know, ricochet across these different guidelines that I've given myself? So that, that helped. And then he also gave, he also gave me his email address. So I was able to then send PDFs instead of hard, hard copy. So I was able to get more immediate feedback. And then, Mm -hmm. but the funny thing about the New Yorkers, they don't, unless you go in in person, they don't really have time to, you know, groom you in any way. You're not given specific feedback. So when you sell, it's just out of the blue. Like it feels like it just comes out of the blue. You just get an email one day saying cartoon sold or okay, you know, and then, there there's there's really and I've never had this situation maybe once or twice where it's like okay you sold this cartoon but we want this or this changed it's just like we want this one and then you draw it and you deliver it and that's it there's very little editorial give and take and I think that's why just with the with the pace of having to produce that quality of magazine every week you know they just don't have a lot of time for give and take so they need to know when you're being submitted that you can deliver stuff that they feel comfortable publishing without any kind of you know note note sessions you know so mm-hmm. part of the thing you're doing is not only showing that you can be a good gag writer and stick with the schedule of submitting every week and be prolific enough to do that but in the beginning the other thing that's really hard is you have to also submit finishes they have to know what your stuff looks like you know you can't just submit rough sketches and be like oh trust me I'll I'll make this look nice you know you have to you have to break in by submitting you know real finishes so that first year is like it's a lot of work you know unless you've shown unless you have maybe stuff that's been previously published elsewhere that they have an eye on and so they know you can do that but more and more with fewer places publishing gag cartoons it's not really the case where the new yorker can poach talent from other magazines because mm-hmm. where else are you publishing you know i guess more people are coming from social media now maybe online comics um but yeah but when you so there's kind of two barriers is like showing your finishes getting them comfortable with your style finally selling selling a cartoon and then the next step is getting them comfortable enough that you can just submit roughs just submit rough sketches and then you can start to you know relax a little bit did your
2: parents think you crazy getting on a plane and going to New York to, to the to the magazine to talk to the.
3: I artists. honestly though the my parents to their credit they weren't they weren't like too judgmental one way or the other I think they were just happy that I was alive and like <laughs> they like they were happy to have me home and kind of you know you know figuring things out um they were never just dis- they were never discouraging about you know a life in the arts my dad's a freelancer my mom has an artistic sensibility you know, there was never any sort of grand ambition about like, oh, you know, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a dentist. There's nothing prescriptive, really. They just wanted to be supportive however they could. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, you'd have to ask them if they secretly had misgivings, <laughs> which I'm sure they did. <laughs> but they, yeah. were, they, were kind, they were kind enough never to voice them to me. Yeah.
2: It's kind of a big deal to get on a plane by yourself and go travel across the entire country to go.
3: Well, funnily yeah. enough, when, when I had, when I had my, you know, depressed, when depression hit me really hard, and I had my whole, uh, you know, the, you know ground falling out from underneath my feet, I was living in New York. I was actually oh. in New York at the time that happened, because I, I went to NYU film school. Oh, okay. um, and yeah, so it's, it's funny. It's like I was in New York, but then I moved back home across the country and then broke into the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, you have to. My my wife is a theater director and we were sort of, we had a lot of friends in the theater community in the Bay area. And there was a joke in the Bay area that you had to move to New York to get cast in a show in, in the Bay area theater because <laughs> they, love, they love casting people from New York. It's so it was like the reverse for me breaking into the New Yorker after I left New York. Are you guys, where are you guys right now?
2: I'm
1: in Montclair, New Jersey. So about a half an hour outside of New York. And I'm near um, Madison, in- Wisconsin. So I'm the Midwest guy here in the middle there.
0: And I'm in New York, if you consider Staten Island part of New York. (laughs) Of course, yeah.
3: (laughs) It's funny, we lived in Kansas City, Missouri, before we moved to Portland, Oregon, which is where we live now. And I I tried to ingratiate myself to people in Kansas City by saying that I have relatives who lived in Ohio, where I would go to visit every summer. My grandparents have a farm there. Um, And everyone in Kansas City was very, very, kind, very nicely, but, but pointed out, is not actually the Midwest. That doesn't actually count. <laughs> I thought I was being smart, but no. It's not <laughs> <the Midwest. laughs> and actually, funnily enough, I, I chose entirely by coincidence. We moved into a house in Kansas City that was half a block away from Charles Barsati. Wow. He, had, he had passed away um, like six months before that. But I got to know his, his wife, Ray Barsati. And I got to see his, his studio where he worked and look at some of his old stuff. That was cool. And I was also, Jack Ziegler lived in Lawrence, Kansas, which was only about you know 45 minutes away. So I got
0: to hang out with him a few times. Wow. That, was, that was really cool. Anything? Do you have any cartoons that you surprised make it in the magazine? I remember we spoke with Drew Dernovich. He said he submitted a uh, cartoon that he didn't even understand. He just had to come up with his 10 a week, drew something up and they bought it. And he mentioned Bob asked him one day, hey, that cartoon, what was that joke? I didn't really get it. And Drew's like, neither did I. Why did you guys buy it? <laughs> have you ever submitted anywhere? Maybe you didn't not get it, but you didn't feel it was very good and it got in? I have. I have. Yeah. I love Drew, by the way. He's he's amazing.
3: Wonderful yeah, he artist. Um, I, I, I did. Yeah, there was one where. They used to do like a magazine at the end. They don't do it anymore, but they did a magazine of like, you know, the one, the cartoons that the readers had the most emails about, like not understanding. Um, And one of mine was like that. It was, it was some lions who were in a cage and they were all dressed up theatrically and they had masks on their heads. And one of the lions was saying, I got, I can't remember the caption verbatim, but it was something like, I'm really getting tired of staging Hamlet every night. (laughs) So, and like, 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 I just I drew that cartoon because I had just learned that the Lion King is Hamlet. Well, like, like, it's an adaptation of Hamlet, and so I just did that cartoon based off that totally, you know, esoteric piece of knowledge. And they bought it, but then Bob later emailed me and he was like, "Yes, exactly." <laughs> but then Bob emailed me and he was like, "What does this? What does this mean?" <laughs> I guess they. So this is it a cartoon.
0: Weird. This is a cartoon that they bought and was published in the New Yorker.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And actually there's a funny, there's a funny story about the one next to it, the other lion tamer one. There's a bunch of lions in this in the savannah chewing on a guy, and the chair and a whip laying nearby. And the caption is the great Zeffirelli's chair worked a lot better in controlled conditions. I that was one of the few ones that I had to redraw a part of it because I submitted it with the manes. The lion manes were all in black ink. And uh, the cartoon assistant at the time wrote back to me and said, can you alter the the mains? Cause it appears a little too vaginal. <laughs> <laughs> like it looked like a crotch. Like when I, when I when you look at it far away, it kind of looks like the mains were forming like a sort of, you know, crotch there. And I so I, I, I absolutely love that I have that email saved. Um, I don't funny. think any I don't think anyone else has been asked to redraw a cartoon because it was too vaginal <laughs> for the New Yorker. <laughs> But there's been a few that, that but yeah, that, that's actually a common thing where like you have, a, you have a couple ideas that you think, oh my gosh, these are amazing ideas. These are definitely going to sell. These are going to become classics, instant classics. And you you have like a couple of those, but you only have seven ideas for the week. So on the last minute, you draw up three others and it's the ones that you did on the spur of the moment that sell and the instant classics are rejected, you know, like it's, it, it yeah, I have to agree. Out. I don't,
0: I don't really get this Hamlet cartoon either. Uh, yeah, There's nothing
3: like
0: You're smart, <laughs> yeah.
3: you're, you're I right. guess they just like the drawing.
2: <laughs> we have one of, of your yeah. cartoons in my house. that's a classic that we say the caption probably 10 times a week in my house. And it's a, uh, yeah, baby, take off that dust jacket. The oh, yeah. <laughs> a, couple in bed, a couple sitting in bed reading a book And the husband, she's taking the dust jacket off her book, and the husband says, "Yeah, baby, take off that dust jacket." And we say that all the time in my house over any.
3: That is really. (laughs) (laughs) I love, I love, I love that. I love that insight into your into your relationship. yeah I don't, I don't think i think that one i think that one i was briefly for a period of time doing a cartoon for the fiction writers review website and i think that one is one of theirs okay. um yeah because I, I i have literary pretenses like i have a lot of unfinished novels laying around like my studio um so i i like doing cartoons about frustrated writers or just like you know the, the writing life um so that yeah so for for a period of time i did i did some cartoons for them yeah
2: my other favorite of his is um, the the Canadian geese flying in formation and one's wearing a spinny hat and it says that was funny like a thousand miles ago. I think that's hysterical. Absolutely. Hysterical.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you look, if you look at, if you look at below them is my grandparents' farm.
2: Like,
3: I, I, I did like a very accurate sort of wow. thing of my grandparents' farm down there yeah. in Ohio, in Wellington, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for thank you for that. Yeah. Animals. You know, if you can get animals talking, that's the reason cartoons exist. You mm-hmm. know, like going back to Pogo, you know, crazy cat, like animal, like getting inside the mind of animals with a perspective on human life or switching the perspective on a certain event. Like I have another one, I actually traded with, Zach, with Jack Ziegler. I, I, I convinced him to trade, trade finishes with me. And I asked for one of my favorite ones of his, which is on the wall over there. His is, uh, there's two prisoners in, in jail and one is holding a book and sobbing and the other prisoner is comforting him. And the prisoner who's comforting him says, it's called crime and punishment. You had to know the second half was gonna suck. <laughs> Which I love, because I love Dostoevsky and I love Jack Ziegler, so it was like perfect. And the one that he wanted of mine was a, was, was a duck one, a duck hunting one, where there's a couple of ducks flying and down in the reeds below them, you see a hunter aiming and a gun at them. And the duck, one duck is saying to the other duck, it's that, it's that time of year when guys randomly explode <laughs> it's like the duck hunting perspective on uh ducks on the perspective of duck hunting season
2: yeah um, i love the one also you have birds in a nest putting a nest together when one of them has a piece of you know wood or whatever it is and he says there's always one annoying piece left over He's putting yeah. <laughs> i love that
3: yeah 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 that's great I actually one of the one of the fun things that I that I have gotten into recently is I give like cartoon presentations, like cartoon lectures, and it is so fun to stand in front of a, an audience and show a PowerPoint of of different New York cartoons and some of my own cartoons, and like hearing an audience laugh at cartoons is so gratifying because we just sort of send them out and assume people enjoy them, you know, like you never actually get that feedback that stand up comedians or you know other people who do more sort of showbiz type comedy get um there's kind of a joke among New York you know how some people say New Yorker cartoons aren't actually funny and then we sort of you know I don't agree with that but there's a kind of joke among cartoonists where like um they have to be not funny enough that someone will you know embarrass themselves by like laughing out loud on the subway like like you want it to be funny that it's sort of an internal chuckle but you don't want anyone to like embarrass themselves by laughing on the subway when they're reading the Cartoon. Drew Dernovich actually told me a story about one time he had a cartoon in that week's issue and he was riding the subway next to someone who was reading that week's issue and he stayed on the train and missed his stop to wait until they got to his cartoon <laughs> on, on the page because he knew it was going to be like a couple pages from there so he intentionally missed his stop just to like be there for them reading his cartoon and of course there was like no reaction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite of your own?
3: Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I like, I like a couple of them. I mean, I like my one that that's, you know, yes, the planet got destroyed, but for a beautiful moment in time, we created a lot of value for shareholders just because it's become like a meme. Like it's, it's a whole Mm -hmm. thing. And so it gets shared a lot. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, I like ones that are like sort of, um, yeah, there it is.
0: So this one in particular, uh, is, so are you, do you write as well, books or screenplays or...? Uh...
3: Yeah, I, I continue to write. I've, I've published a handful of short stories. I did a kid's book um, just last year, How to Potty Train Your Porcupine, which I wrote and drew. Um, I have a couple of unpublished manuscripts that may never be published um, in, in my desk drawers. And I'm still pecking away at, you know, a graphic memoir that requires writing and stuff like that. So yeah, I do, I do enjoy writing.
0: Because for this cartoon, it's really all about the writing. Right. Uh, you know, typically brevity is best, but you know, in this case, if you don't really add that, but for a beautiful moment in time, the cartoon doesn't really work. It's, it's, you know, it's, that, exactly. e- it's those extra words that, that make it funny because you expect, you know, but for that beautiful moment in time, you know, something good happened and then the punchline right. flows in. All we did was make money for our shareholders. Uh,
3: exactly. That's a really, really good way of describing it. Yeah. It's that, it's that sort of waxing poetic, before like the brute capitalism that, that like makes the mm-hmm. this guy is standing in a pocket in the sitting in an apocalyptic landscape you know waxing poetic about this wonderful time when he was able to make money for shareholders so yeah it's it's, it's that it's the sort of high and low it's it, it's it's the contrast but yeah you're right it's very rare that like a two sentence caption would even get bought let alone become popular so that's that's kind of why this is a little bit you know a, 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 a sort of an anomalous one. Um, my other one that I really enjoy, just because it's 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 like spoke to my own like sensibility, and it was one where I got to, I got to draw a really unique kind of bubble. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it didn't have the sort of you know um, uh, wonderful New Yorker font at the bottom. I was actually able to hand write it, which I enjoyed doing. You know, Roz Chast has never ever published a cartoon that has the Adobe Caslon. New Yorker font at the bottom. All of her stuff is handwritten. Um, and I like doing that just because it has a really nice personal touch to it. But there's one that's kind of just pops to mind that I enjoy. There's a couple guys talking at a bar and one guy's speech bubble has bracketed anything. Like he could be saying anything. And the other guy is saying, that reminds me of a scene from The Big Lebowski. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, you know, anything anyone yeah, says can. relates to The Big Lebowski. And I'd, I'd never seen in a cartoon like bracketing anything, like just to me, like what, like this person could be saying any, like, how do you represent in the speech bubble that they could be saying XYZ, right? And it just prompts. So this guy has the exact same reaction no matter what the other person is saying. So I was, I was happy to execute that. Um, and there's a couple other ones. Like there's one that's really the word, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but there's a couple of people sitting in a coffee shop and one of them is saying, you know, what is friendship if not constant amateurish psychoanalysis? <laughs> you know, I kind of like the writerly quality of that one when you can just like write a concise observation. But I mean, you know, whatever one is published that week is my new favorite just because it's so thrilling to know that people are looking at it um, mm-hmm. and hopefully, hopefully enjoying it.
0: You don't do many captionless cartoons either, right? Which brings me back to sort of a, a, more of a writing craft. Right. You- yeah, if you
3: can if you can hit a captionless cartoon, that's like the that's like the Everest. That's like the epitome of like it, it can only live in that medium. It doesn't need words. It's just images because you've cracked this situation where you can deliver a whole joke visually. It's really hard to do. Um, There's some mm-hmm. people who are so good at it. You know, like obviously the one of the old masters, Otto Soglow, had like hundreds of captionless cartoons that were brilliant. William Stagg did a lot of, a lot of really good ones too. Charles Adams, of course. Um, but I've had a few, one of them was um, a guy, a therapist pushing his patient on a jogging couch instead of a jogging stroller. Like there's a, there's a woman walking by pushing a jogging stroller and the therapist is pushing this guy on a jogging couch <laughs> so he can get in his exercise as he's, you know, psychoanalyzing this person uh so there's that one what other caption I done? oh my god now you've now you've put me in the hot seat i can't i can't think of my own body of work there are some there are some other ones that i've done that i can't think of right now but it's not my speciality i like i like the i like the sort of you know the witticisms of the of the caption um,
1: yeah, there's there's one that you did that jumps out to me that i guess it's not really caption list but it's it's a billboard that's uh 1-800 quick toe and it's the billboard is uh how can I say this a very well-endowed woman on it and it's caused a lot of traffic accidents below it so it's a towing billboard that yeah
3: there you go yeah it doesn't yeah the advertisement creates its own business so it's it's flawless that one was for uh Playboy that that makes makes sense
1: I didn't see that one in the New Yorker
3: no 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 yeah so yeah Playboy I, I did I did I did a few years with them. They don't publish a hard copy magazine anymore. I think they still sorry if you got that burp in there. But they they still do like cartoons for social media but they don't have a they don't have a hard copy magazine anymore but I got in there right at the end last couple of years publishing stuff with them. But yeah, if you can if you can do captionless, you are a good good cartoonist. Um, that is that's that's what we're all striving for. The caption is a crutch, but it can still be really funny. Um, there are some people who specialize in it so well. Um,
0: yeah, I can't think of his name now, but the guy who has the cartoon, the guy's filling up coffee and he's got a coffee pot head. Stein yeah, what are something. his
3: initials? S-S-J-D, S-J-T, Seth Fleischman. Is it Seth Fleischman?
0: Yes, I
3: think that's- S-J-F, S-D-F, S-D-F, yeah. he's Yeah, he's a more recent cartoonist. He does really, really good captionist ones. Yeah, so it's just you know the writing, but I come from sort of a writing angle of it. So it, when I arrive at a captionless cartoon, it's either it, it came to me, you know, suddenly, or I've managed to simplify the joke to the point where I don't need the caption. But I always kind of find my pathway to the joke through the language. Um, little, mm-hmm. I'm not a do- I'm not a doodler. Like I know I know some people sit down with a pad and they're like, okay you know this looks like this so here's a tree in a park oh no what if it's not a park what if it's a desert island What what if what if it does, you know and then it sort of evolves from what they're doing um i find you know i i i'm too much of a perfectionist that i actually am discouraged by my doodles because they they're not it takes me a while to arrive at a good drawing so i get discouraged if i if i am focusing too much on my doodles and the doodle in my hand doesn't work as fast as my brain does so i find if i'm doodling then it kind of halts the the sort of you know synapse connection whereas if i just keep it rumbling around in my mind then that connection will be made that i didn't expect um but yeah but you know you some people reach out to me and they're like you know what are some tips on cartooning how do you break in and one of the things i always say is like get used to being bored like just become a friend with boredom like don't (laughs) don't don't read like just put your phone aside don't reach for your phone, don't look for distract because our brains are wired to constantly have stimuli. Like a lot of the ideas just come from when you're bored out of your skull and you're trying to entertain yourself. Well, like, you, like you're just desperate for some interesting idea to focus on. So so yeah, just, you have to sort of push through the boredom barrier of like the first 10 minutes, nothing, 15 minutes, nothing, 20 minutes, nothing. Don't reach for the phone, just sit. <laughs> you, know, you know, if a doodle helps, Try to do a twist on some and, you know, give yourself homework assignments. Be like, okay, Halloween's coming up. I haven't done a jack-o'-lantern one. What's a jack-o'-lantern one? You know, like that kind of like start from somewhere and, and find mm-hmm. your way into it. Because it's easy to reach for a phone and be like, oh, I'm going to read the headlines. Mm-hmm. and That'll give me inspiration. It doesn't, it doesn't really. Like it often, it often doesn't, you know, unless maybe you're strictly an editorial cartoonist and you're looking to comment immediately on the day's events. But when you're trying to create something that's more sociological, more observational, relationship-based, um, that just, that comes from your, that comes just from, from inside, I think more. Um, I think we rely too much on like reaching for things to inspire us when we just have to sort of sit with our own boring selves until we find something amusing.
0: <laughs> well, you were doing daily cartoons for a while, for a little while, right? So that required kind of the opposite of actually going in the paper and getting caught up on the daily events.
3: Yeah, I had done a daily. They, it used to be a different system where they would assign you to the daily, and you would have it for like a month, so you knew you were going to do it every day. Where you tried to, you tried to, you tried to sort of make New Yorker cartoons that were also editorial cartoons. So that I, I don't think they were strictly the sort of political editorial cartoons you'd find in the Wall Street Journal, for example. But they, they were still New Yorkery. But there was the pressure of having to do it every day. It was fun. It was fun to ha- to know you were getting the paycheck. It was fun to know you were gonna have an audience for that day. It was also like a serious gear shift because usually, you know, we're, we're turning in stuff once a week. And if you sell once a week, you're lucky. Um, producing every day for them was a lot of pressure. And I happened to be assigned to the Daily Cartoon, you know, during Trump's selection, during Trump's inauguration. So that was a lot of pressure. It was also kind of inspiring to have a event for all the stuff that was going on at that time. And those those got collected into my first little book, Tiny Hands. That got published um, around that time. Uh, but yeah, but now it's different. Now now it's sort of an open submission process, so you don't you don't have like a, a steady gig when you're on the daily. Mm-hmm. It's it's more used as a way to kind of uh, encourage people who they're interested in um, to give them a little bit of visibility.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll jump into caption contest in a minute. But you did do a lot of Trump cartoons. Do you have a favorite Trump cartoon of yours? <laughs>
3: Uh, I like the Trump trash fire, because I like the way that I was able to render his face like the flames above the trash can. Um, yeah. And I, I, liked, I liked the, um, the uh, arc of history bends toward just us, instead of, instead of justice, because that was sort of br- bridging, you know, Obama to, to Trump. And I liked the I liked the women's march, the one where uh, you know Trump Trump was saying you know I'm fantastic at estimating crowd size, probably a dozen women at most, because um, it was kind of a mesh a mashup of those two contemporaneous events where they were lying about his inauguration crowd size, and there was the much more massive women's march that happened immediately after. Um, so it it was nice to be able to you know that's what you're trying to do with cartoons is take two things and find a way to link them and find a surprising connection between them. So I was happy with the way that one worked. And I was just, I was figuring out how to use color for the daily cartoon in that way. And I liked the way that that color kind of came out and the way Mike Pence is crouching behind his legs is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of, I actually, actually I browse the internet and like all the signs that are in the background are actual signs that people made that I found and tried to render them really, really small. Um, so I had a couple of people reach out to me when they saw the cartoon and be like, oh my God, is that my sign? Um, so that was kind of fun to actually document historically, you know, that moment. Yeah. Um, so this is the caption contest podcast, isn't it? Yeah, so it do. is. What are we talking about here?
0: So what's your what's your take on the caption contest? Uh, <laughs> you a fan? We like to ask all cartoonists um, what their overall take is.
3: I am I am a fan. It's really, really cool to know that tens of thousands of people are scrutinizing your drawing. Like I because I, 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 I tend to put in like a lot of kind of detail into my drawings. I'm one of the, I'm one of the more like detail drawing people that, that The New Yorker has. Um, I used to be more so, I've, I've kind of tried to simplify it more recently, but it's cool to know that people are like looking really closely at the drawing, trying to decode it. And I mean, you know, not to diminish what we do as, as cartoon artists individually, but crowdsourcing kind of works. Like people come up with really, really funny stuff, mm-hmm. um, su- surprising stuff. I mean, for this one, that came out this week um, with the guy at his desk sitting on the sidewalk outside of his brownstone, like he's working on the sidewalk at his desk. I had submitted that one pre-pandemic as my own joke, and the caption was, "I'm tired of working in obscurity," like I'm, or maybe I'm tired of laboring in obscurity. So he's like a frustrated writer writing on the sidewalk to get some recognition. Um, <laughs> then they 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 didn't want that caption. I think I maybe resubmitted it because you know a dirty little secret of submitting to the New Yorker is you can often like resubmit an idea a bunch of times with some small tweaks. Which if, when you have when you've been doing it for a decade, there's a lot of stuff that you really like that you kind of want to keep nudging them. Um, and you know if you change the caption significantly enough, it is genuinely a different cartoon. So resubmitting is a little bit of a misnomer. But I had submitted this one I think again, and they bought it for the caption contest. But that was pre-pandemic. So I had I had a bunch of people. Walking around in the scene without masks, and then I I waited you know ten months during the pandemic, and I realized you know I wrote to the editor Emma Allen, and I said, should I just add masks to these people? Would that be more useful to you guys if you could use this? Because it might be kind of fun with the whole you know social, you know, alienation that we're feeling right now, and people being trapped indoors, and maybe wanting to work outdoors. That might break open some new stuff for people to have interesting takes on the on the on the cartoon. And she said yes, and so I I did a bunch of the masks on people but then by the time it got published we were in this weird liminal phase where a, a, like people had been vaccinated but some people hadn't been vaccinated there was a whole debate about do you wear masks in public do you not so i don't think any of the captions ended up floating to the top focus on the mask wearing but the whole mask wearing was a difficult thing to, to hit for this for this drawing so
0: that was what i kind of redid a bunch of times um, so they, they they bought this without the masks and then you suggested hey you already bought this, but would you like me to do more work to it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Huh, interesting. So,
3: so yeah, but I was, I, one of the fun things I like about the caption contest is seeing where people are from. Like, it's always interesting to see where like it's not really relevant to the quality of the caption or how they're eventually ranked, but like, it's just interesting to see where people are from. Um, there's, it. there tends to be kind of a coastal thing where like, a lot I've noticed that a lot of people are either from, california or the east coast or you know there's there's i'm I'm happy that we got a a beaumont alabama in there right no where's that yes Alta. is that supposed to be ala maybe that's a maybe that's a typo but anyway oh yeah so on on i think it might be i think it might be supposed to be alabama who knows anyway sam villetard wherever you live mystery man
2: It's funny, with this one, we have a Facebook, we talk about the caption contest every week and um, pretty much every day, and uh, there was a lot of discussion about this cartoon um, as to why the, the adults had masks, but the kids didn't, did that play into any caption ideas?
1: was right 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 uh,
3: i mean it was a really yeah when i put the masks on and then when things started changing with the cdc guidelines i knew there was going to be no way to get it right (laughs) to make it not be distracting because like now because i think when it came out even during the course of it being like in the like in the three weeks since we've arrived at a point where it's actually the complete opposite where like kids are wearing masks but adults don't, don't have to right um so yeah, that was not intentional on my part. Um uh, I think I think the note that I got back from the editors was just like, yeah, it makes some people wearing masks because we were in a we were in a sort of vaccinated, sort of not vaccinated phase. Yeah. But I think I think all the ones that eventually rose to the top of the top three don't really reference the masks,
1: right? No. No.
2: Nah. Yeah. And then there was a lot of talk as to whether the person at the desk was a teacher or, you know, we it was just a lot of chatter about
3: Yeah. Things. That's basically my avatar. Like, imagine whatever you're doing <laughs> at your desk that you think you deserve more recognition for. Uh, yeah, so he's inflicting himself on the public, trying to get recognition. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all of them were really, really funny. I don't know how they eventually figure out which one is which one is funniest. I mean, it's it's like you know, humor is subjective, so it's it's just it's a fun way to engage readers. But I'm always impressed. People always do a really, really good job. I've had I've had a lot of people write to me when I have the caption contest in there, and the the beginning of the email is always I've submitted for years and I've never won. Like I just wanted to send you this one so you know this is mine. And like it's like people are really become invested in trying to crack the code of the caption contest. Yes,
2: <laughs> yes, they do.
3: <laughs> I know some I know some cartoonists are kind of like, well, I'm not such a fan of it because it kind of you know diminishes kind of what we do in our own individual. Like it's kind of like, you know, uh, but I don't know. I, I I like, I like, I just like knowing that people are looking really, really closely at it. And it's also one of the few times that, you know, when you publish in the New Yorker, you publish New Yorker cartoons. You don't publish Tom Toro cartoons necessarily. You don't publish Sam Gross cartoons necessarily. Emily Flake cartoons necessarily. A lot of readers might recognize you, but whenever a cartoon in The New Yorker is referenced, almost always it's this New Yorker cartoon. It's not like the individual artist. So the caption contest is one of the few places where you are named. Like, like what they say, like this cartoon by mm-hmm. so-and-so is this week's caption contest. I mean, you know, our names appear on the masthead, but you have to then go back to the masthead and be like, okay, this name is number four. This is the fourth cartoon that appeared. This is this person. And I, and I was stupid enough early on in my career to start signing my name in sort of like cursive. <laughs> like, I, I, like I like how Paul Knopf, for example, Paul Knoth writes, Paul Knoth. <laughs> like, yeah. It's very clear that that's Paul Knoth. Like I have, like some people have said, is that Torb? Like, what is that? Like, no, yeah. that's, just a flur- that's just a flourish at the end of the O. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was looking at Gary Larson's signature when I decided to sign in cursive like that. But no, that's, that's yeah. So so the cool thing about the caption contest also is it's a little bit of individual recognition for the, the person who, who drew that week, which is kind of cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any uh, caption contests that you could think of that uh, you were particularly impressed with one of the finalists? Or the opposite, that you thought they were horrible and uh, had this <laughs> one get selected?
3: Yes, let me name this particular person <laughs> who I thought was absolute <laughs> garbage. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't. I I can't think of them right now. Um, I I can't think of them right now, unfortunately. But I, I I just I just I I just know that you know, people are funny. You know, people are funny. It's just I think that there's. You know, when you have the image to decode, like like the real way, to have people, you know, be cartoonists, is to give the caption, and then like have people do the drawing where it's like the caption doesn't necessarily explain what the joke is, right? There's, there's a couple people, like, there's this one Instagram account of this person who just like switches captions on like cartoons and they kind of work like, like, like either way on just like random cartoons. But, it, but it's a little bit easier when you have the image because you're prompted, like you're prompted to, to decode it in different ways. And I just love the fact that like, you know, hundreds of different variations are possible. It's, it's kind of cool. Like, it, like there is, is no right answer to what mm-hmm. is the funniest caption. And it's just, it's just really cool to think like, yeah. I mean, I find it inspiring for myself too, because it's like, when I'm stuck in a rut, I can't find a right caption for my own drawing. It's like, you know, there's a hundred ways you could do this. There's like you just have to sort of loosen up a little bit, think about it differently, come back to it, step away. Um, so the caption contest is actually a good reminder that like the search for the right answer is misleading. You're actually just searching for what is your interpretation of this in a funny way you know um but yeah i like it i'm a fan of it i wish they would do more more of mine
2: (laughs) do you ever try to come up with a caption for the weekly contest that's published
3: i do sometimes and i suck at it i can't i can't do it i can't do it with other people's drawings (laughs) i yeah i i I, yeah it's it's funny because I just know that they. I know most of the artists. And I know that they had a better idea when they submit. Like because sometimes you submit the drawing and they get back to you and they're like, "We really like this drawing, but we don't like your caption." So they want to use it as that. Sometimes you submit it and you just don't provide it, or you just do the little underline and you're like, "Maybe you want this as a caption contest." Which um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't often because I, I have that artist's voice too specifically in my head that I can't like sort of you know erase that. It's a little bit too strong. Um, but yeah, I did, when I was first trying to break in, I did kind of like try it sometimes just as an exercise. And I was actually, I was actually never very good at it. So that's another reason why I'm impressed by, you know, ordinary people coming coming up with hilarious things. We used to offer signed prints, like the yeah. New Yorker, like the winner of yeah. the New Yorker, the New Yorker would send you a signed print. And so you actually had that little bit of a personal correspondence where you would then send it to them and you could include a little note saying, you know, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, they don't do that. They don't do that anymore because that's considered like a, gift or it's considered a you know a prize award that's worth money so then it was it couldn't be opened to as many territories as they want to open it to so now I think it's global now because there's no reward Mm -hmm. Um, but I got to do that a few times where you actually would sign the print then and send it to them with their caption on it so it was kind of it was cool to do that that's very cool yeah did you guys ever do you enter do you guys enter oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) Every, every week every week (laughs) <laughs> what, and were we your, what, what, what were your guys' captions to mine? Do you remember? Uh,
2: I I know I know my captions to a few of yours. Um,
3: Turning the tables,
2: you had a uh, you had a, a mouse riding a cat, with two other mice looking on, um, and the winning caption to that was "Listen to this baby purr." That was the winner. That was not me. Mine, mine was, I love that new cat smell.
3: that's a good one i like that one
2: i thought it was good but it didn't go anywhere um and then you had one that mine was absolutely horrible like i'm embarrassed to even tell you what it was but but i will um it was a a man at a job interview with five empty or six empty chairs in front of him before the desk of the person who was interviewing and um the winning caption was where do you see yourself 5 chairs from now which is good typical interview ca- you know question mine was okay I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this but okay mine was we'll feel a lot closer when Kevin Bacon gets here because it's 6 degrees of Kevin right. Bacon. Yes
3: yes yes yes
2: <laughs> I was like why oh did God. that win <laughs> Absolutely terrible but, um, that's but,
3: funny. I like those. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I forget what my, forget what my initial captions for any of those would be. I think for the mouse riding the cat one, mine, my, my caption was also pretty bad. It was something like, you know, you just got to keep practicing. It was, it was like, it was, there was some emphasis on practice, mm-hmm. like practice, practice makes perfect or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but I liked, I liked the ones that came up with the sort of interpreting the cat as a car. You know, that's, yeah. that, that's funny. That's funny. Um, <laughs> How
2: about anyone, you else, any,
1: anyone else? Yeah. The, the only one I have is the, for the, for the one that's most recent here. And I had a, I'm transitioning working from home to working from front stoop. <laughs> yeah. that's good. Well, it's okay. The
3: eight, yeah. The good thing is the gradation. I like that. I like that. Yeah, but I mean, the caption contest is a good it's just also a good example of like, you know, when you're trying to do cartooning or break into cartooning, just think of a funny image and then like, you know, solve it like, like, there's kind of a rule of thumb where like, if the image has something absurd about it, the caption can't also be absurd. The caption has to sort of be logical, because then you have the tension between the ridiculous and the sane. right? So there, there's a tension there. But if it's just two people in a coffee shop and there's nothing inherently ludicrous about the drawing, then it's up to the caption to be funny. Like, like then the caption has to have some sense of absurdity to it. Um, but you can't do both because then, then, it's, not, then it's not New Yorkery. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, then you're kind of gilding the lily or it's sort of compounding joke upon joke. And it gets, it, it verges into sort of silly which the New Yorker never wants to be seen as silly. Um, and
2: typically, the, uh, the, what the cartoons that are chosen for the contest are ridiculous drawings, like they have something crazy going on in them, because if they were just two people sitting in a coffee shop, you know, how do you, how do you pick a winner for a, for a caption contest for that? You know, they could be talking about anything, you know, so um,
3: right. exactly.
2: we kind of view it as, you know, what, what's the, the puzzle that we need to solve? With the caption so looking at the you know whatever is going on in the picture there's got to be some kind of incongruency what what is it and solve it with the caption so that's that's kind of how we look at it wouldn't you say guys
0: yeah absolutely yeah you <laughs> definitely need an incongruity yeah and
3: it's a good it's a good way for people not only to have fun trying to solve the contest but for people who are interested in cartooning as a kind of you know template for like you know your drawings should be something like this like like there should be something funny about the drawing itself that Mm -hmm. you then provide your own interpretation of at the bottom Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's a good example of yeah and when it comes to style I mean there's another rule of thumb where if like if the joke is good it can be drawn almost any number of ways but a good drawing can't save a bad joke Mm -hmm. right so it doesn't actually matter like you can't force it through your draw. so that's another thing that's kind of you know we were talking about writing a little bit earlier on i, I think matt diffie also said like you know 95 percent of his time is writing so much of it is the writing because the drawing actually does the drawing is actually the easy part that's the part that gets all the attention you do have to hone your skill you have to become good at doing it and all that kind of stuff but honestly you could do a pretty sloppy like line drawing of a funny idea and that's better then an extremely detailed unfunny idea right so mm-hmm. so it's about the writing it's about honing it getting it down so you so it's clear what the clever twist is and the mm-hmm. other thing that people often fall into the trap of is making things overly complicated right it has to be very very evident what the funny part of the drawing is you know it's like oh this is where my eyes you have to you have to move the you have to guide the eye in a very clear way you know mm-hmm because you have to get a joke in like three-tenths of a second right? For, for it to actually be funny, to not belabor it.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, your drawings are very detailed. Uh, how long does it take you to come up with, draw up a uh, final sketch?
3: I can do it in like an afternoon. I'm trying to get faster at it. I can do it in like three or four hours. Um, I know some people who do it in like 20 minutes, which I'm very jealous of. David, David Sipras, and I love David Sipras' style, but he can do them very quickly. Um, Cyprus, Cyprus. It's funny. I, mm-hmm. I know everyone's name, but I haven't actually like heard a lot of the names pronounced out loud. So, David, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name. But you know, some people their their style just allows for more fluid fluidity. What I tried, to, what I what the hardest thing, and I know a lot of my colleagues also have this difficulty. I know Jack Ziegler did. We talked about it a bunch of times. Is trying to maintain the sense of spontaneity when you go from pitch to finish, because oftentimes the pitches are done under time pressure. And you're whipping, and there's some element of it that just looks fun, like it like just sort of looks vivacious, and you captured some spark in it. And then when you put it on your light board, and you put the paper down there, and you're thinking in your mind, oh, this is going to appear in the New Yorker. Like, like there's a kind of tendency to overdo it a little bit, or to clench up, and keeping the spontaneity in the actual finish is is one of the great challenges. It's something I still struggle with. Um, I would like my stuff to be a little bit sloppier, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do take pleasure in doing detail, detailed work as well. It's one of my ways of differentiating myself. I wish I had a straight up line style, but I had to teach myself how to watercolor too. watercoloring can be quite difficult. And it's funny when you go from doing black and white to doing color for Playboy, you have to like completely see the world differently because you're, you're like used to working in grayscale. So it's like training the eye to move across a cartoon in the right sequence that you want the reader to experience in color is completely different than in grayscale.
0: And And it it opens you up to more jokes, right? In other words, you couldn't do the Trump dumpster fire joke without color, right? So that whole cartoon goes away without the ability to have color. So color kind of opens you up to more opportunities.
3: And yeah, yeah, that is true. It does open up more opportunities. There's kind of a debate about whether color makes jokes funnier or not. You know, and I think there, I think the New Yorker has been grayscale traditionally. So like that kind of is just emblematic, um, it, but like, okay. So if it's in colored, it's starting to publish color more but wouldn't necessarily make it funnier. I think it's actually, I think jokes happen faster in black and white. I think the mm-hmm. color to a certain extent can be a little bit distracting. Um, it's fun in Playboy because Playboy actually doesn't, the jokes aren't meant to be gotten as quick. The humor in Playboy is the is the sub, is the sort of transgression of it. That that's what's funny. It doesn't have to be as fast, so you can actually do more detailed, painterly things for them because it's actually meant to be looked at because of the kind of like you know eye, eye candy quality of it. So it's a different it's a different style. You're talking about different mediums when you try to compare the two. But working they used
0: in to phone, do they used to do the whole page, right? I don't think they did like a portion page, of the page. Yeah it was always full a full page which is again it's which kind is, of different which is you, so you do cool. focus on it a lot more
3: yeah, yeah yeah i have to say it was really cool to see a full page cartoon when you do get, when you do get to publish like that i mean i have i have the complete playboy collection of gahan wilson's stuff amazing like amazing full page cartoons not a, and not, like none of them are sexual humor either like he was the one guy who was doing like just his absurdist gahan wilson stuff in playboy um I mean the new yorker they used to do full page too it's kind of a shame they don't do that anymore arno adams uh helen hokinson in the early days they got full pages so when you see a when you see an arno or you see a charles adams in it's like in crazy detail i mean part of that's because it was holding real estate it had a full page in the magazine you know but we're kind of yeah so we're, we have to draw more for i think The tendency of the style away from the painterly toward the sort of more spontaneous is by virtue of how small the cartoons have gotten in the page, the room they're taking up. And also by the fact that they went from hiring gag writers to the cartoonists having to come up with their own gags. So when you had a gag writer supplying your gags they were actually hiring illustrators to do the drawings, right? So they were more detailed and and pretty. Um, Now there's less emphasis on the drawing because we have to come up with our own gags. That's the primary focus. It has to be funny first it doesn't really matter how well it's drawn Mm
0: -hmm. yeah do you ever work with gag writers now or you keep all your stuff uh yourself some people send me
3: things and i'm always flattered um i can never use them (laughs) (laughs)
0: because
3: i i know i think who was it there was one of my cartoon colleagues i think it was matt diffie again who said uh he has sort of a nightmare of being on his deathbed and the doctor coming into the room and saying, by the way, I'm a huge fan of this cartoon of yours, and it being one that he didn't write. <laughs> you know, like it being the one that he like got a gag writer for. Um, and so yeah, it's just, and you know, if you work with a gag writer, you have to split the fee, which isn't appealing. Um, we make so little money as it is anyway, that you are seeing now more shared credit, though, in the magazine. It didn't used to be that way, but now there's more two names of either people who came with it together or someone who's working with a gag writer. Which, which is you know fine for some people's technique, but I kind of, I kind of like the 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 pride of ownership of it and doing the writing and the drawing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, send me gags if you want; something might work out.
2: <laughs> Interesting combo, I think, is uh, Steve Martin and Harry Bliss teaming up. I together.
3: mean, if you can work with Steve Martin, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like you know, if Ricky Gervais wants to do cartoons, right. like hit me, hit me up, Ricky. Like you know, like I, I'd be fine doing that. But I mean, yeah, that's a funny. That's that's a that's a cool partnership.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: did you guys read their book, A Wealth of Pigeons?
2: Yeah, I have I it. I have, yeah,
3: yeah, love it. Yeah, that was the same. I did the, that same publisher did a uh, User's Guide to Democracy that I did the illustrations for Celadon. They're a great publisher, uh, but that came out right after my book, and I was like very bliss <laughs> so good he's so so good yeah, yeah. he lives in jd salinger's house really in vermont oh. did you know that oh. yeah he bought jd salinger's house I, I could you know correct me if i'm wrong harry but like i think he lives in jd salinger's house <laughs> that's crazy he has, like he started this uh artist residency called like the cornish the cornish artist residency with the cartoon studies place that's there in vermont and part of it is you get to go, like, stay in the guest room uh, in, Harry, in, like, J.D. Salinger slash Harry Bliss's uh, house. So it's kind of cool. I've applied a few times. I haven't got it yet, but it seems like
1: it'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I'd be looking for uh, missing manuscripts or hidden manuscripts that he may have hidden around in there somewhere.
3: Yeah, I'd be tear, tearing up the floorboards. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> to Esme with love and potatoes. What is this? An
0: early draft. <laughs> You, do you send anywhere other than the New Yorker I mean it looks like you you have a few in the cartoon stock caption contest so I guess you send a few there
3: yeah yeah cartoon stock is doing a really good job of opening up some stuff they do stuff with airmail uh, airmail is mm-hmm. the sort of the online weekly magazine um and like yeah I'm getting this I'm hopefully getting the syndication thing up and running so that'll become like a huge focus if that ends up going forward um, I did playboy for a while um, I mean to be honest like I'm hoping to focus more on kids' books and that kind of thing because the New Yorker is like the only game in town. I mean, they they buy weekly. They buy they buy weekly and they pay the most. So it's like, I, I guess people who don't do it in the New Yorker are hopefully you know have enough of a social media following to aggregate that into digital ads or whatever they do. I don't really know how you make money on online cartoons. Um, that's the net. That's the next nut to crack. Is like, how can you? Instead of a bunch of instead, instead of millions of people sharing your stuff for free, how can artists actually have digital content that creates revenue for us? Um, that's really hard to do unless you have like hundreds of thousands of followers or something. I don't know. But yeah, the New York is the only game in town God bless them. Print publication. I mean may it, may it yeah. live on, may it live stronger in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. You guys are all subscribers, right? That's required to do yes. this podcast. Yes. You have to subscribe. Okay, good.
0: Yes. Do
2: you ever do any covers for the New Yorker, or you just strictly do the cartooning?
3: I've sent a few. I've sent a few. I don't focus on them a lot, but when one occurs to me, you know, I, I have I have Francois Mili's uh, email, and I'll send her some stuff. It's it's hard. It's really hard to crack. And there's a few cartoonists who do, who've done that. I know Danny Shanahan, Ed Steed, who's a great new cartoonist, has done a bunch of covers for them. Um, Bliss, you know, has done really good covers for them um but and ross chast of course um, mm-hmm. i love it when Roz does her ones that are like her embroidery yeah. she's crazy talented. i mean her, her embroidery is really good and she mm-hmm. does those fabergé eggs too it's wild yeah I don't, know, I don't know where she finds the time to do that and write a best-selling memoir like good lord um but yeah, i would like to I, I still send stuff the one that i had is a daily cartoon that was pretty popular of the guy sitting on the fire escape with his desk on the fire escape it was finally spring, but we were still in quarantine. It was like, you know, going going to your office now. Escaping into spring was the like unworded caption for it. I had submitted that as a potential cover. Um, but Francois wrote back saying that they were, you know, booked up for the spring already. I also don't quite have my thumb on the pulse of like what their root what their calendar looks like. Because sometimes they're booked up month and months in advance. Sometimes they choose ones that are that week, you know, they'll get Blit to do one. Um, Barry Blit is amazing. Yeah. The last last cartoonist who will ever win a Pulitzer Prize in cartooning because apparently they don't give those out anymore oh yeah.
2: this year right that, that was a big
3: weird yeah. mm-hmm. very weird yeah. yeah I don't know what's going on there but yeah so covers I mean I would love to do a cover yeah mm-hmm. I would love to do a cover but yeah it's uh that's hard I mean that's a whole another set of artists who have their own stories of rejection (laughs) and breaking. I mean, it's a little bit presumptive to be like, I want
0: to do cartoons and covers. Um, But it's interesting Ed Speed does covers because he's not really a, I love his cartoons, but he's not the best drawer. Mm -hmm. I, I think his cartoons are great, but they're not, I mean, drawn as well as yours. I didn't know. Yeah, he I, think, I think I think I think I think he, he would he
3: would be he'd be the first to say that. I think he I think he would be the first to say that he's not the best drawer. He's he's, he's aware of that. I think he was in I don't know where he is. I think he's in England or something or or he travels all over the place. He's kind of a vagabond. Um, but he came to New York and he did, he did like a live drawing class with a bunch of cartoonists and he was doing it. Apparently, I wasn't there, but I heard the story and he was there and, and he was drawing and he's like, I feel like I've been exposed as a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> because his like because his, his live drawings and mine would be too. I'm a terrible sketcher, um, but yeah. But I think he just has a quality of absurdity there to his that that is are kind of charming. I mean, if you look at, I keep saying at William Steig because I love William Steig stuff. But Steig did some covers that were just sort of bizarre. Um, mm-hmm. You know, weird looking flowers over kind of pig people. And there's really no, there's not kind of no relevant. There's nothing to interpret in them. They were just whimsical mm-hmm. and, and funny. But in Steed's way, he has his own uh, almost sort of grotesque humor about, like, these weird sea creatures and stuff. Grotesque is probably too strong a word, but quirky or, you know, but I like his drawings. Yeah. I think uh, Bruce
2: Eric Kaplan did a cover, too, also.
3: Bruce's stuff is so good. Yeah. I mean, talk about it. Talk about an individual style. I mean, that, that pops off the page, you know, immediately. But it's a Bruce Eric Kaplan cartoon, obviously. It's sort of like nuclear lit landscapes. It looks like, it always looks like there's like an A-bomb like just off frame that just got ignited. Um, His stuff is great. I actually, I traded traded with him for an original one of his drawings too. Um, Actually trade is not the right word because I wrote to him and I was like, I love your stuff. Do you want to do an art swap? And he wrote back saying, I don't collect art but I'll give you one of mine, what do you want? So he didn't want want one, (laughs) but I got one of his. Uh, Do Do
2: you sell your original cartoons?
3: yeah sometimes i'll auction them through swan galleries i haven't done that for a while there's a couple stuff there's some stuff on CartoonCollections.com that uh, or cartoon now i guess.com that um that have originals for sale it's rarer it's rarer to do that but i i try and also because I, I i try and keep the price high I, I try not to sort of undercut the market on original art mm-hmm. but that's another reason to do stuff in hard copy versus digital you know oh. like if you do hard copy then you have the original i know some people who do exclusively digital they'll like print out a nice you know, Glee-K print or whatever, and they'll say like, this will be considered the original, but it's a little bit different. Yeah. Which um, yeah, other, the, the the B-E-K one that I have is, is one that was after I had just had our, had our kid who's six years old now, but it was like when we were looking around for preschools for him, it was just such a funny one to me. There's an alien coming down from a spaceship talking to one of his like, you know, weird people. And the alien is saying, um, greetings Earthling, how are the schools? <laughs> which you can interpret two ways it's like the alien looking for a good neighborhood to send their alien babies or an alien calling out the fact that we've failed in the most basic function of a species which is to educate our youth properly <laughs> right um so I, I love that one yeah his stuff is great yeah he, he hasn't done a cover for a while but i like it when he, yeah they're very striking that black and white style is so striking it reminds mm-hmm. me almost of a. Uh, Who's the guy that does Sin City? Frank something? Um, Miller, Frank Miller. Frank Miller, yeah. Do you guys have any favorites? Who's your favorite living cartoonist now? George Booth doesn't count because he's everyone's favorite. Yeah. Uh,
1: Sam Gross comes to mind. I, I, you know, followed him since Lampoon. I, you know, he just cracks me up. He just keeps putting them out there. And they're, just, they're still good.
3: Sam is amazing. One of my favorite Sam gross ones is there's the uh, Hamlet scene at the graveyard and Hamlet is like lifting up the skull and there's a couple vultures on the tree nearby. And one vulture is saying to the other, I also knew Yorick. Well, he gave me diarrhea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. That sounds like one of his, you know, my favorite one that he does. It's, it's one of his, uh, blind uh, people where there's a sign on him. Uh, it, the sign is, uh, I am blind and my dog has asthma. And at the end of the leash are, is a vacuum cleaner that you know, <laughs> just good. cracks me up, still cracks me up when I think of it.
3: There's another great Sam one. We, we could geek out on Sam Gross for the next hour, but, but like, there's another great Sam Gross one where there's the classic office setting and there's, the com- there's a comments box and there's someone writing on the wall above the comments box, go fa, and then someone next to them is saying, no, you're supposed to put the comments in the box. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that one
3: he can he can make like he gets stuff from the new yorker that you that not a lot of other people can because it's just right on the edge it's that it's that lampoon sensibility um yeah
2: i love uh frank cotton um he can draw dogs like they just the way he draws a dog is hysterical to me and i just always his cartoons are so funny
3: um he's great i love his stuff he has such a unique i mean He's an example of like, if you have a strong enough style, it actually opens up humor that other people can't do in the same way that George Booth can. Like he has this one, Cotham does, um, where he has this one where there's a king on a throne. He loves like these medieval settings. There's like a king on a throne and there's all these people in like weird hooded garments kind of around the throne room. And one of the king's aides is saying, you have weird peasants. (laughs) It's like, it's just by virtue of the fact, like the outfits he has them wearing, these little like gnome outfits. It's just, it's just funny in the way that he does it. And If I drew it, it wouldn't be funny. <laughs> I have one of his, I traded for one of his that I have downstairs where there's a cat at a window holding a smoking revolver. And there's mm-hmm. a dead bird in the yard and the cat is saying, I'm declawed, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> love that. So, um, yeah, he's, he's definitely
2: up there. And I love Tom Chaney also.
3: Mm. yeah, I like Tom's stuff too. And, um,
2: and of course, Bruce Eric Kaplan, like he, the way he does childhood angst is the funniest, Yeah, you know, he's just hysterical.
3: Yeah, I mean, Bruce Eric Kaplan's career is the envy of all. It's just like having one of the most distinctive styles in cartooning in the history of The New Yorker uh-huh. and being a writer on Six Feet Under and an executive producer on Girls, that's not bad.
0: Yeah. And Seinfeld. Mm-hmm.
3: And he wrote the Seinfeld episode exactly
2: yeah yeah he's... he's-
3: one person I miss is uh, I love Zach Kanan stuff so much mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I I don't think he cartoons as much now because he's doing so much TV writing he's very successful in that realm but he's he's a voice that I I love and I, I wish I, I wish he was in every week I wish he was had 48 hours in the day and could, and could cartoon as much as he does for TV but yeah yeah
0: I miss his style and he
2: has such if I'm a- not.
0: If I'm not wrong, he was the first or one of the first assistants for the caption contest. I think he was one of the first gatekeepers when the caption contest first started before uh, Farley Katz.
3: Yeah, yeah. Kanan was Bob's assistant. Yeah, I think they, they probably launched it off during when he, when he was the assistant there. He has a funny story about breaking into the New Yorker where he was working at the Harvard Lampoon and he like answered the phone. The phone was ringing and no one was picking it up and he answered the phone and it was Bob Mankoff. And Bob was like shopping around for an assistant and came and answered the phone and he got the job. <laughs> and it turned out he's turned out he's a brilliant cartoonist. Um, but yeah, he's 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 great. A um, couple other people. I mean, you know, the cool thing about the New Yorker recently is they're doing a, a very you know, overdue and exerted push to diversify the ranks of the cartoonists, which is long overdue. Hey, there's my kid Elijah. Hey. Well, this is really fun guys i could yeah get to thank you so much chat cartoons forever
2: <laughs> thanks for coming appreciate on. having you on
3: if i'm ever in madison i'll look you up
0: yep so next good.
3: time uh, next time i'm in, uh, in new york i'll
0: drop i'll drop a line great
3: right?
0: all right sounds good thanks again all
2: yep. right thank you so
0: much um, take care